Good evening and welcome once again to our Bible study series in the book of Acts. This is a rather lengthy series that we have been doing for a number of months. If perhaps you're just joining us, want to invite you to stay and all of the previous Bible studies, both the recordings and the notes, are available for you, or if any of the others have missed any of the studies, you can always go back and look at those. Uh, easiest way is through our website, new-life-ministries, and you can download whatever materials you need there. You can also follow along live, uh, either on the telephone Wednesday nights at 7.30, or online at mixlr.com following the broadcast name, New Life Ministries. And all of the recordings are also archived there at MixLR. Okay, um, we're in part 8 of this 12-part series. If you are following along in the notes, we're somewhere around page 137. I'm going to jump around just a little bit before we actually get started, probably on page 139, but I want to backtrack a little bit to uh, introduce what we're going to do tonight. We're going to go a little bit deeper than we normally do, so fasten your seat belts. Uh, Tonight's going to be Theology 101. We're going to look at some pretty deep topics that have been debated for time immemorial, and I'm sure they'll continue to be debated, and our purpose tonight is not to try to say this is exactly what it means or that's what it means, but rather to try to look at all of the scriptures and get a little bit of a clearer understanding on uh, what we're going to try to introduce. Uh, obviously, we can't put God in a box, and we're in trouble as soon as we try. And if we think we understand all there is to know about God, we're already on very shaky ground because the Bible tells us His ways are past finding out. God is a mystery there's no way we can possibly comprehend everything about him. But there are several scriptures that give us great confidence and great security as we read through the Bible. One of them we heard about on Sunday, and it's been blessing me ever since. Psalm 119, uh, David said, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. I like that. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled. God's already settled everything in his word. God's not confused. He's not changing his mind. He's not shifting back and forth. And Jeremiah 29, 11, uh, it literally says, I know very well the plans that I have for you. That's God speaking. So, God knows the end from the beginning. He knows his purpose, his plans, his ways. He knows exactly what he has planned and purpose. He knows exactly what he's doing. The trouble comes when you and I try to figure it out. And we're going to try to dive into something very deep tonight, which we came across in our reading at the very end of last lesson, and I want to pick it up again in Acts 13 from verse 46 to prepare us for what we want to look at tonight. The background here, Paul and Barnabas had gone to a synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. Paul had given uh, a very long, very clear and pointed gospel message. Some received it well. Some didn't. And in verse 45, we read, When the Jews saw the crowds coming to hear Paul, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. Verse 46, Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, 
We had to speak the word of God to you first. We've talked about that a lot. They would always give the Jews the first opportunity to hear the gospel. Every new town, every new city they went to, if there was a synagogue, they went there first. If there wasn't, they still sought out any Jews in that city to give them the first opportunity to hear the word of God. This was the apostolic pattern. So, we had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it, and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, that was something they did, you do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded, quoting from Isaiah, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Verse 48, When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Now, we want to look specifically at verse 48. And if you are now following in the outline notes, this brings us to the bottom of page 141, and this is a very long section, special notes on this one verse, verse 48. I'll read it again. When the Gentiles heard this, that they were now turning to them with the light of salvation, with the word of the gospel, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And here comes the specific phrase we want to try to get a little better understanding on. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Let me read that from the Amplified Version. As many as were destined, appointed, and ordained to eternal life believed. The New Living Translation. All who were chosen for eternal life, became believers. And the King James Version, as many as were ordained to eternal life, believed. So, this one phrase, all who were appointed, ordained, chosen, all the translations basically read the same, all who were appointed to eternal life, believed, has been the subject of a great deal of controversy over centuries of time. And the debate centers on two words, appointed and believed. And more specifically, the debate centers on the order in which those two things occur. It would seem, in all of the translations we just read, the appointed part comes first, and the believing part comes second. Now, some listening to me may be wondering, well, what's the big deal? Why are we even worried about this? Well, it's a very important issue, because historically there have been two groups, basically at odds with one another, one group, the taking more of the strict Calvinist position, is that God has preordained, pre-elected those who are to be saved. Those are the only ones that will be saved. It's a done deal. God already did it in eternity past. The other group, the Armenian camp of theologians says, no, 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 no. It's all about man's choice. Whosoever believes will inherit eternal life. God didn't preordain anybody to be saved or to go to hell. He gives everybody an equal shot, and it's up to you whether you believe or not. Well, let me tell you right up front, 
I take neither of those positions. I believe both of them are correct to a point, and I believe somewhere in the middle there's a mysterious third position which no human being can quite wrap their brains around. Because again, we cannot put God in a box. What I want us to do tonight is look at a number of scriptures. And I think you and I both agree, we can't pick and choose which scriptures we like and which ones we don't. So we're going to look at a broad range of scriptures, which I believe are going to show exactly what I just said, that there's an element of truth to both of those extreme positions that I described. And of course, I'm describing it in a very brief way. There's much, much more to it than that. But we'll see a number of verses that clearly indicate God did the ordaining, the appointing ahead of time, and then came the believing. But we'll also see an equal number of verses where man is responsible for his own choices. Those who believe will be saved. Those who choose to reject the word of God, they will be condemned and ultimately spend eternity separated from God. Alright, so, as I warned you at the beginning, fasten your seatbelts. We're going to go a lot deeper than we normally go here tonight. And we're going to spend this entire time just looking at this one scripture. And again, all who were appointed for eternal life, believed. Now, before we even get into this, I think it's extremely significant that we have to look at the context again. Just two verses prior to this, the apostles told the Jews, you have rejected the word of God. We came to you first, we had to speak the word of God to you first, but since you have rejected the word of God, and these words we're also going to look at again more carefully, and you do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. It can't be any accident that it was both to the Jews and in reference to the Gentiles, that the words eternal life are used. The Jews rejected the word of God. That was their choice, their decision. And they considered themselves unworthy of eternal life. Therefore, the apostles shook the dust off their feet, and they turned to the Gentiles, the Gentiles gladly received the word of God, and then were told, as many of them as were ordained to eternal life, believed. Alright, the word that's translated in the NIV, appointed, or in Amplified, destined, appointed, ordained, we want to first look at that word all those who were appointed to eternal life believed. And yes, in all of the scriptures and all of the commentators and scholars agree, the order is very clear. They were first ordained and then they believed. Now, if we can just understand what appointed or ordained means we might be able to come up with a clearer understanding of what the Word of God is trying to teach us here. The word translated, appointed, is the Greek word tasso. It's a word that is only used eight times in the New Testament. And so we're going to actually look at every place in the New Testament where the word is used, because I believe it's critical that we understand what this word means, how it's used in the New Testament, perhaps even by other writers in the New Testament. The word 
means, and I'm going to give you a rather long definition here, it means to arrange in an orderly manner, that is, to assign or dispose to a certain position or lot. It can mean to appoint, to determine, to ordain, or to set. Wherever the word appears in the New Testament and elsewhere, the essence of this word's meaning is to place something in a certain rank or order. And it's actually derived from a word that's used to describe the arranging or disposing of a body of soldiers in regular military order or rank. So <clears throat> the idea is you've got a bunch of pieces, you're now going to arrange them in some kind of an order, some kind of a rank, and whoever is doing the arranging is the one that's put in, putting them in their different places. So it means to determine, to set, to appoint, or to arrange in a certain way. Now, let's look at each of the other places in the New Testament where the word is used. Obviously, one of the eight times is the verse we're studying. All who were appointed for eternal life believe. That's the word tasso, translated appointed. <clears throat> it's also found in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 16. I'm jumping around in translations here, so hopefully you are following me in the notes. Uh, Matthew 28.16, I'm going to read it from the New King James Version. It says, To the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. Word appointed is this same word, tasso. Notice, Jesus is the one doing the appointing. He appointed a certain mountain for them. Luke 7 and verse 8, Luke, of course, the writer of Acts, is also the writer of the Gospel. He uses the word several other times, including this one. Luke 7 verse 8, reading from King James, it says in the story of the uh, Roman centurion, For I am also a man set under authority. It's the word set, or appointed, put into a rank, uh, designated a certain position. Again, the centurion didn't set himself. Somebody external, and also, note this, somebody higher than him in authority, and that's usually the case whenever you find this word, uh, obviously a superior officer set him in his place. So I am a man set under authority, appointed, designated to be under authority. Luke uses it in Acts 15 and verse 2. It says, So Paul and Barnabas were appointed by the church, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem. Notice again, the word here, appointed, same word, tasso. Paul and Barnabas didn't appoint themselves. There's an external authority. In this case, it's the church that appointed them to go to Jerusalem. Acts 22.10, I'll read here from the New King James Version. You, speaking to Paul, will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. Well, the one appointing these things for Paul to do is the Lord Jesus. This is in reference to Paul's conversion 
on the road to Damascus, and he's recounting that story later on. Paul, you're going to be told all the things which are appointed by the Lord Jesus for you to do. Paul was not the one doing the appointing. It was a higher authority, in this case, the Lord, doing that appointing. And finally, in the book of Acts, this is not the last one, but it's the last one in the book of Acts, Acts 28-23, the New King James Version, it reads, So when they, this is the Romans, had appointed him, Paul, a day. Now, this is way ahead of where we are, but Paul is eventually arrested by the Romans, and they're the authority, they're the ones who appointed him a day. Notice again, the one doing the appointing is external, and it's an authority above Paul. The Romans appointed Paul a day. In Romans 13 and verse 1, Paul uses the same word. In the King James it reads, The powers that be, he's talking about civil government authorities, the powers that be are ordained of God. So, we understand presidents, kings, senators, policemen, People in any position of authority, they didn't appoint themselves, they're appointed, they're ordained by God. They're set in that position of authority. Same word. And then one, one other scripture in 1 Corinthians 16 uh, and verse 15 uses the same Greek word, Here it's translated quite differently. They have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. So, this word is used eight times in the New Testament. Invariably, it refers to something being put in place, determined, appointed, ordained, and it never comes from that person or entity. It's an outside authority who's doing the ordaining, the determining, the appointing. So, coming back to our scripture, all who were appointed for eternal life believed, I think we can very safely already understand The one doing the appointing is outside of them and above them in authority. They were not appointing themselves for eternal life. And obviously in the context, we're assuming it's referring to God, the ultimate authority who makes these decisions. God appointed them for eternal life. Now, Let's look a little more carefully at the various scriptures we just read where this word appointed or ordained is used. In the reference from Matthew to the mountain which Jesus appointed for them and several of the instances in Acts, it actually is used to denote commanding or designating something. The Romans designated a day for Paul the prisoner. They had the authority to do that. In Romans 13, where it's used in reference to the civil governing authorities, they're ordained, they're instituted, they're uh, appointed to that position. In Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas were appointed by the church, along with some others, to go up to Jerusalem. It seems to imply they were chosen, they were determined, and then they were appointed to that task. Again, didn't come from them, it came from the church. And then the 
reference we read uh, about the Roman centurion, he had been placed in his position by a higher authority, a superior officer. So the word there denotes being placed under some higher authority, subject excuse me, subject to a higher authority. Why am I going through all this? Well, a number of commentators and Bible scholars, because it's such a difficult verse to really perhaps understand or accept, all who were appointed for eternal life believed, the implications are quite obvious, because of that, they have suggested that the real meaning of all who were appointed for eternal life believed simply states that these Gentiles who believed, they already had the internal disposition or inclination of heart within themselves to believe and thus receive eternal life. We know anybody who believes receives eternal life. Jesus made that very clear. But these scholars and commentators would urge us to just accept they already had some internal leaning disposition or inclination whereby they were appointed for eternal life. But as we've seen, in every single case, the Greek word tasso is never used to denote some kind of an internal disposition or inclination arising from oneself. It always comes from outside of the individual, from a higher authority, one with the power and the ability to order, dispose, arrange things from without. So, this interpretation, I think, we have to reject. It's not some sort of an internal inclination that they already possessed. Um, I'm not going to go too far afield tonight, but the scriptures are very clear that prior to salvation, there's no one righteous, no, not one. And no one even seeks for God. No one wants God. No one wants to do what's right. So the scriptures are very clear that fallen man, in and of himself, has absolutely no inclination to turn to God or to believe in God. He prefers to go after sin. He prefers to reject God and go his own way. So, we're forced to look at some other meanings here. Is there some influence outside of them that made them appointed for eternal life? So, being appointed for eternal life does not necessarily refer to some kind of eternal decree that came from the very throne of God. Uh, It's not a direct confirmation of the doctrine of election. Doctrine of election is basically that extreme view, the Calvinist view, that before the beginning of time, God already chose those that are going to be saved. End of story. The rest don't have a chance. They're the chosen ones. They're the only ones that are going to be saved. So, just taking this one verse, we can't possibly use it to prove the doctrine of election. Being appointed for eternal life does not necessarily indicate that. Some would infer that, and that's fine, but it doesn't necessarily have to. It simply refers to the fact that the Gentiles that are being referred to here, they had become disposed to embrace eternal life. Now, we already discussed this, 
They didn't dispose themselves. Something outside of themselves disposed them, inclined them to embrace the Word of God and embrace eternal life. So, they're inclined by some influence outside of themselves, and that led them to believe. Well, that this was accomplished by some influence is not hard for us to explain. The influence is the Holy Spirit. The influence is the operation of God's grace on the heart of a fallen sinner. We have numerous scriptures. I've only listed a few in your notes, and I'm actually going to take you to another one that's not found in your notes, but let's first look at the ones that we have here. The point being, something disposed them toward eternal life. I'm going to suggest from all of these scriptures that the Holy Spirit and the grace of God worked in their hearts, it operated on them, and so disposed them toward the Word of God and toward eternal life. Let's look in Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 5. Paul, writing to Titus, says, At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. That's a pretty good summary of the condition of fallen man. You can couple that with Romans 3, where he goes even deeper. All have sinned, come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. Uh, We don't even seek God. No, not even one seeks after God. So he says, we, he's including himself, at one time we were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice, envy, being hated and hating one another. But, how do, how do we get out of that? How did we become believers? How did we become Christians? Notice what he says in verse 4. But, when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared. What's the very next thing after that laundry list of evil? It's when God appears. Particularly, when His kindness, His love, His grace appeared. That's the influence. The influence external to us, Paul is saying, changed us. It disposed us in a totally different direction toward salvation, toward eternal life. How did it start? When the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. There's the external influence. He saved us. And lest there be any confusion, Paul continues, not because of righteous things we had done. Has nothing to do with anything we did. We didn't seek God. We didn't decide we wanted to become believers. We wanted to clean up our act. We did nothing. God did it all. He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk more in a couple of other scriptures about a word that is mentioned here in verse 5, rebirth. To be born again, well, the child has nothing to do with birth. The child is the product of the decision of the mother and the father. The parents are the ones responsible for birth, not the child. 
And that metaphor is often used in Scripture to explain the miracle of what happened when you and I got saved. We were born of God, born again. Look in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. John's Gospel, by the way, has many, many references to what we're talking about here tonight. John 1, 12 and 13. Yet to all who received him, that's Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And you're saying, hallelujah. Finally, pastor, you read a verse that shows as soon as you believe, you become a child of God. Okay, I'll grant that. To all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. But he's not done yet. Read verse 13 very carefully. What kind of children are these? Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Hmm. Seems to suggest again the need for an outside influence even to incline or dispose us toward receiving Christ and believing in His name and thus becoming children of God. Now, this is not in your notes, but everybody will recognize it. I want to read from John chapter 3, the story of Nicodemus coming to Jesus by night. John chapter 3, I'm going to read verses 1 to 8. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Now, this is fairly common in the ministry of Jesus. People would come to him either with questions or with statements, and on the surface it seems he wasn't even listening to them. He's not even paying attention to what they said or what they asked, and he goes off on a tangent in a totally different direction. Well, Jesus heard him. He knew exactly what he came for, and he's going to tell him what he needs to hear. I tell you the truth, no one can see, can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Now, in many of the Bibles, including the NIV, there's a note on born again, and this is really a better translation, and it's also in verse 7. It could better be translated, born from above. <clears throat> I prefer that, <clears throat> because I think it's more theologically accurate. We didn't birth ourselves again. We're born from above, external, beyond us. This birth didn't come just from us doing something. This birth came from God, which goes right along with what we read in John 1. Children born, not of natural descent, nor of human decision. This is not something that is so simple that you and I just decide to do it. It is an act of God. So, he tells Nicodemus, no one can see this spiritual kingdom unless he's born from above. Verse 4, Nicodemus responds, How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. 
Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Now, I think some people have misread and misinterpreted this. Nicodemus was not a dummy. He knew the Old Testament scriptures. He was a very wise spiritual leader amongst the Jews. He just doesn't understand how can you be born from above? How can you be born again? He understood this is some kind of a spiritual remake or makeover or rebirth. How can it be? Jesus goes on, verse 5, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. Stop, (laughs) right there. Many people miss verse 6. They jump right on to verse 7. Verse 6 is critical. Flesh can only give birth to flesh. A fallen sinner is just flesh. That's all he can give birth to. He can't give birth spiritually. The Spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit, gives birth to Spirit. Ah, now we're getting a little more insight into how this new birth This spiritual birth is going to take place. It's not going to take place from some internal disposition. It's going to come from the Holy Spirit giving birth to something spiritual. Verse 7, You should not be surprised at my saying, You must be born again. Or, better translated, You must be born from above. Well, then you need God. You can't do this on your own. You need God to do this. Born from above. And verse 8 ties it all together. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Notice this carefully. The wind blows where it pleases. You didn't choose this. I didn't choose this. You didn't make this happen. The Holy Spirit did. You didn't get yourself born again by making some decision. The Spirit of God birthed you. That's why he ends the whole thing with, so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Born from above. Born not by your own will or decision, but born by your Father. Okay? We got more. Same Gospel, John 6, this is in your notes if you're trying to follow. John 6, from verse 37, we're going to pick some verses, 37, 44, and then 63 to 65. You'll recognize some of these verses. John 6, 37, Jesus is talking here. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Now stop. The order is very important here. We're talking about people coming to Jesus. Okay? Well, what happened before they came to Jesus? Something else already happened. They had nothing to do with. A decision was made. The Father gave them to Jesus. All that the Father gives me will come to me. What determines those who come to Jesus? The Father. What did the Father do? He already gave them to Jesus. Okay? All that the Father gives me will come to me. And then, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I will never drive away. Verse 44. No one can come to me 
unless the Father who sent me draws him. Whoa, stop. No one can come to Jesus. I didn't make this up. Theologians didn't make this up. This is Jesus himself. No one can come to me unless something has already happened. Again, there's an external influence. What's the influence? The Father drawing that person. They can't draw themselves. If left to their own devices, if you and I are left to our own devices, we will run away from God. We'll run away from Christ. We'll run away from the cross. Why did we come to Him? Something was drawing us. It was the Father. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, here's the clincher. Fasten your seatbelts. Verse 63 and onwards. The Spirit, that's capital S, the Holy Spirit, gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit, and they are life. Yet, there are some of you who do not believe. For, critical word, for. For, Jesus had known from the beginning. I put this in all caps for emphasis. <coughs> Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you, no one can come to me unless the Father, and now he uses a different word, has enabled him. This is deep. This is very deep. And... Putting it all together, Jesus basically says this. you got to come to me to be saved. Coming to me means believing in me. And no one comes unless, first of all, the Father gave them to me. Secondly, no one comes unless the Father influenced them, drew them to me. Thirdly, no one can come to me unless the Father gives them the ability to come. They lack the ability to come. Therefore, he has to enable them to come. But I want you to pay close attention to verse 64. A lot of people pretend this isn't in the Bible. It's in the Bible. Yet there are some of you, Jesus is saying this, there are some of you who do not believe. Here he is, inviting them to come to him. Here he is saying, God is drawing people to me. Whoever comes to me, I'll give them eternal life. And he stops right in the middle of his preaching and he says, By the way, there are some people standing right here today who do not believe. How did he know that? He had known from the beginning. Key word, beginning. Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe. Seems to suggest they were already predisposed in that way. They, they were already set in rejecting him and not believing in him. Okay? That's a lot. Ephesians 2, verses 4 to 9. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, now in the context, he outlines in verses 1 through 3, our condition as sinners. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. We were messed up. But, because of his great love for us, here's the outside influence 
coming from God again. <clears throat> but God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. We didn't make ourselves alive. We didn't revive ourselves. Dead people can't revive themselves. We were dead in sins and trespasses. He made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions. How? It is by grace you have been saved. That's why I suggested at the beginning, this influence external to us is nothing but the love, the goodness, and the grace of God operating on our hearts, making us alive, inclining us, disposing us toward eternal life, toward Jesus. Verse 8, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Now, this last part that we read, I think we all understand, we're saved through faith. But note what he's really saying. Saved through faith, and this, it's referring to the faith, and this faith is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works. Now, if you really get a revelation on that one, it'll blow your mind. Because if you have become a believer in Jesus, maybe you thought it was your faith that believed in Him. Paul says you got it wrong. Even the faith to believe in Him didn't come from you. It came from God. It was a gift of His grace and mercy, not by your works. You and I have nothing to claim for ourselves, nothing to boast if I believed in Jesus, I need to praise God for that because He enabled me to do it. Now, I want to do one more section here, and this is where we're going to have to close. We're not even going to be able to finish this section tonight. Back earlier in Acts, in chapter 11, we came across this verse. Acts 11, verse 18. When they, it's referring to the Gentiles, specifically Cornelius and all of his household, the first Gentiles officially that Peter preached the gospel to, when they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. Pay attention to those words. The fact that Gentiles were now coming to Christ, how did they interpret that? How did they understand that? God granted them repentance. Well, we know there's no way you're coming into eternal life unless you repent and believe. They are acknowledging here even the ability of them to repent had to be granted them by God himself. Now, some of you, your heads are probably spinning at this point, and that's okay. Uh, let them spin a while. I want to expose our audience to as many different scriptures as possible so that we can't just dismiss this and say, oh, that's a bunch of malarkey. I'm not going to believe that. There are too many scriptures for us to say this doesn't mean anything. This was the mindset in the early church. This was the understanding they had about God and about salvation and those people who were being saved. They saw God as actively involved in it. So when Gentiles got saved, they said God granted them repentance. Well, the very first gospel call is to repent. 
to turn away from sin, stop sinning, turn toward God, repent and believe. First two steps in salvation. Well, we're seeing scriptures now that indicate even our ability to repent didn't come from us. We needed outside help. We needed something to dispose us toward repentance, and then something to enable us to believe. Acts 11.18 says it's God granting repentance. Graciously granting repentance to the sinner. In other words, it's God who opens the heart, softens the heart, draws the sinner, changes his heart, enables him to begin to listen and to begin to humble himself and to begin to receive the word of God. (coughs) This is something that Paul mentions later on in his second epistle to Timothy. Look at 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 to 26. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, and if, if you are trying to serve the Lord, you're trying to share the gospel with others, I guarantee you, you're going to be opposed. People are going to hear what you have to say, and maybe just close their ears, maybe walk away, or worse still, they may oppose you, they may even get nasty with you. We're not called to argue with people. We're not called to win debates. He's very clear here with Timothy, a servant of the Lord. Don't quarrel with people. Don't get into arguments over the Bible and what's right and what's wrong. That's not how we win souls. You might win the argument and lose the soul. Don't quarrel. Be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful, Those who oppose him, the servant of the Lord, he must gently instruct, listen to this, in the hope, got to have hope, in the hope that God will do something. So, (coughs) here's the picture. You're the servant of the Lord, you're trying to share the gospel with someone, They don't want to hear it. They're opposing you. They're rejecting what you're telling them. They're saying, basically, I don't believe in any of that. I'm an atheist. You're crazy. I don't believe in Jesus. I don't believe there's a God. I don't believe in the Bible. Well, Paul's saying, first of all, don't get hot. Don't start quarreling and arguing with them. Keep yourself calm. Keep gently teaching them instructing them, but you're looking beyond them. You're looking toward God in the hope that God, listen to these words, same words, in the hope that God will grant them repentance. So, if you're dealing with someone right now that's rejecting your word, They're rejecting Christ. They're still going their own way, and you're getting frustrated, and you're starting to get heated up, and you want to argue with them and quarrel with them. Please study this verse. It'll help you immensely. Put your hope in God. Start praying for God to grant them repentance. They can't do it. Their own disposition is not to repent. It's to resist. So God has to grant them repentance. He has to change their heart. He has to open their heart. He has to incline them, dispose them toward what you're saying to them in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and then several other things happen. 
then they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Right now they're captives. They're, we talk a lot about free will. Well, captives aren't free. This person's not free. They're not free to make the right choice. They've been taken captive. And until that captivity is broken, they're not free. And how does the captivity get broken? God grants repentance. One more scripture, and here is where we'll have to stop. Getting ahead of ourselves, this is a little later in the book of Acts, but I want to read it now to show this. In Acts 16 verses 13 to 15, when Paul goes to Philippi, he meets a woman named Lydia by the river there, and he preaches the gospel to her and a group of women with her. Hear what happens. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God, meaning she was uh, a Jewish worshiper. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Are you starting to notice this is all throughout the book of Acts? This was their understanding of how God operates. This was their understanding about how people were getting saved. Now, Lydia was a nice woman. She was a a follower of the Jewish religion. But, Paul starts preaching Jesus Christ, something else needed to happen. The Lord opened her heart in order to respond to Paul's message. (coughs) Notice the order. Paul gave the message, the Lord opened her heart, and then and only then did she have the ability to respond to Paul's message. God had to work on her heart. She needed an outside influence to open her heart, to dispose her toward the word that Paul preached. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, Come and stay at my house, and she persuaded us. Now, we're not nearly done with this yet, so you're going to have to put on the pause button in your brain, because we've not looked at all of the different scriptures yet. Basically, so far, we've just looked at a number of scriptures that talk about an outside influence, namely the Holy Spirit and God's grace, changing the heart, disposing it toward eternal life. All who were appointed for eternal life believed. And thus far, and again we're not complete by any long shot, but thus far it seems God appointed them And he did it by operating on their hearts, disposing their hearts graciously to embrace eternal life. Now, we're eventually going to look at a whole slew of verses that talk about man's responsibility. We're not going to be judged when we stand before God on God's election or God's predisposition, we're going to be judged on our choices. So our choices are extremely important. And these people, after God disposed them, they made a choice. We're going to receive the word of God, we're going to rejoice in Christ Jesus, and we're going to believe in him.
And so they owned their own choices and decisions. We'll talk much more next time about the decision that the Jews also made. They made a decision about themselves. They judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. I would maintain they made a choice and a decision that disqualified themselves from eternal life. Now, much more to come. We'll have to stop there. Let's close in prayer before we finish this off tonight. Father God, in the name of Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your Holy Spirit. You've promised that the Holy Spirit has come to lead us and guide us into all truth. Give us revelation. Give us spiritual insight and understanding. Lord, I confess, these are difficult topics that we're discussing here. And these are not easily understood with the human mind. Matter of fact, we understand that your scriptures declare your ways are past finding out. It's beyond our human capacity to fully know or understand your ways or plans. Your ways are as high above us as the heavens are above the earth. Millions of light years beyond us are the things that we're discussing here tonight. Predestination, election, ordination, you appointing people to eternal life. These are very difficult for us to grasp. And so, Father, I'm praying for the Holy Spirit to help us as we continue next time digging even deeper, going further into the Scriptures to try to understand what they seem to have some understanding of in the early church, that you were granting them repentance. You were opening their hearts so that they could respond to the message You had already appointed them to eternal life, and that's why they believed. God, we thank you tonight for the miracle of new birth. We thank you that we've been born from above. We take no credit for anything. It's your mercy, your grace, and your love that any of us ever found it in our hearts to repent and to turn to Jesus Christ. Therefore, to you and to you alone be all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise. God bless and keep each one who's with us tonight in this Bible study. Let the Word of God continually be our joy. Let it be the meditation of our hearts. And Father, once again, we embrace the truth that you've given us in your word, that forever, forever, your word is settled in heaven. The plans, the purposes of God are forever settled. You know them from the end of the beginning, and we can trust and rest in you that you will complete 